This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Welcome to The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Jesus Christ. This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college. You can read what I write at excorde.org. And I want to go through the life of Christ from conception to resurrection in this podcast. It's going to be his story, not mine. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about my story so you'll know where I'm coming from. Because this examination of the life of Christ is the fruit of an exploration of my faith that started when I was crying in my black Honda Civic in the fast lane of I-91 near Meriden, Connecticut in 2005. I was driving south from Connecticut's Bradley Airport to New Haven. My sobs shook my body and made it hard to concentrate on the road. They also were the beginning of a season of great doubt in my life. Doubts that would force me to re-examine and reconstruct everything I believed in as a Catholic. The first thing I did was change lanes. Then I tried to catch my breath. I had cried very little in adulthood up to that point. I've cried a lot more since. I figured it would take me half an hour or more to get home. I'd better stop crying now if I didn't want to look like I had been crying. I was returning from a flight to Arizona to visit my mother. She had been diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, on February 9th, Ash Wednesday. As priests were saying, from dust you came and to dust you will return in churches around the world, her doctor was telling her the same thing, less poetically. ALS shuts down your muscle groups one by one over the course of usually a few years or a few months, ending with your heart. But for months before that, the family had known something was wrong. Over the summer, my mom's voice had started slurring, and my dad started fielding private, concerned phone calls from worried friends and from her three children, who wondered if she had become a secret drinker. Nobody knew what was wrong. Everybody knew it was something huge. When I visited her after her diagnosis, I came face to face with the greatest suffering I had ever seen close up. Each time she choked when she attempted to eat, each time she dripped saliva from her mouth and gurgled helplessly, each time she tapped out a clipped message on the machine that spoke for her in a strange metallic voice, my world shriveled a little bit. I had read all about the problem of suffering, but it hadn't prepared me for this. I had even read those writers who point out that reading about suffering doesn't prepare you for suffering. They were right. The proximity to actual suffering triggered a deep revulsion in me. I couldn't understand why my all-powerful God was sitting idly by, just watching. But my mother's slow-motion descent to the grave was not the only religious crisis I faced. That religion of mine is, of course, Catholicism, and I faced the crisis every Catholic was facing, but which my chosen subgroup of Catholics faced in a particularly nasty way. Reporters, pundits, and gossips often exaggerate the problem of priests abusing children. News reports conflate decades' worth of cases to make them all seem current. 
commentary pieces act like the story of the church in our day is simply and only the story of twisted predator priests. They get the whole story wrong. But the terrible fact is that at the end of the 20th century, the church allowed too many wolves into seminaries, issued them vestments, and sent them to parishes to take care of the lambs. The issue became personal for me in the person of Father Maciel, Maciel L.C., founder of the Legionaries of Christ, a religious order that ran a lay group. When the Vatican finally revealed the truth about the founder, it said he was guilty of actual crimes and lived a life devoid of scruples and of genuine religious sentiment. He lived a life of the deepest depravity. And so it was that in 2005, I faced two brutal facts. God's church sometimes ordained monsters and put them in charge of people like me. And God sometimes watches as those he supposedly loves suffer agonizing, living deaths. The two truths stood in front of me like giants blotting out the sun. God was watching my mom get beat up and was doing nothing. And my heart felt vocation and God's church had been designed by a perverted con man. A priest's words from college kept me wrestling with my doubts. You are full of faith now, Father Arthur Swain had told a group of us at Daily Mass, brim full of piety. You are young and idealistic, but you won't be forever. Believe me, years from now, when you see what life has in store for you, your faith will stumble. When that happens, you need to remember you are a baptized, confirmed Catholic. God has promised to give you what you need to keep your faith and to be holy. Don't let him break his promise. Insist on faith. If you lose your faith, get angry about it. He promised you faith. Don't let him off the hook. I hadn't believed it when he said it. I would always be faithful. Faith would always be easy. But now that it was happening, now that my faith was stretched thin, I did what he said. I prayed, angrily, insistently, and then desperately. How dare you? How dare you allow my mother to be squished like a bug? How dare you allow your holy Catholic apostolic church to be baited like a trap by a monster? Who are you anyway? I didn't do this once. I did it for an hour every day. I literally spent an hour every day at lunchtime in front of the tabernacle asking the question again and again. I'd pray a rosary until the question interrupted. I'd pray the stations of the cross until I found myself in front of the 10th station, realizing I'd been lost in anger for 15 minutes and my hour was up. I felt like I was drowning in currents and cross currents of lies. I needed to reach out my feet and touch bottom. Finally, I focused on the issue as Father Swain had asked. I started to examine those things in my faith that came with 100% guarantee, the sacraments. I started with baptism. I looked up the baptismal promises, read what the church teaches about them, and asked theologians and priests and sisters and good guys from church about them. Hard questions, incessantly. Baptism gives you faith, hope, and love, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the tools necessary for happiness. That's guaranteed. It isn't automatic, like a motorboat, but it's guaranteed, a sail in your soul that, if you unfurl it, will catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, which is grace. I remember the fire in Father Swain's eyes when he insisted that we demand these things, so I demanded them. I highly recommend that anyone troubled in their faith do the same thing. Demand faith. Demand love, wisdom, and understanding, all of it. Insist on it. 
honestly, angrily, repeatedly, never let him off the hook. He will do what he promised. He has to. But at our baptism, we also make promises to God, or our parents and godparents do on our behalf. And I realized that I had to keep my end. Three of the promises have to do with rejecting Satan and sin, and three have to do with accepting Christ by accepting the creed. I believe in God the Father and all he has done, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and each event of his life. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the church that mediates him to the world. I felt driven to write about Jesus Christ, but not just to write about him, but to try to see where the true facts of his story meet the real questions in my life. I want to see what leads people to embrace Christ in the first place. What are we looking for? What questions of ours does his life answer? What new questions does it raise? Where does it seem relevant? Where does it seem irrelevant? A lot of that seems obscure, but the more you engage with Jesus himself, the more obvious it becomes. Here's the basic story as I understood it when facing these doubts, and as I understand it now. Adam and Eve committed a fundamental sin, thereby drawing condemnation on themselves. We, their children, inherited the same condemnation. But Jesus came and freed mankind from this condemnation. And we needed to become baptized in order to take advantage of this new situation. But that story posed nothing but further questions for me. It has always been hard to get into a headspace where Adam and Eve are this all-important couple that caused every bad thing that followed, and that there's only one remedy, and that's water and special words. First, I had a few scientific questions. Was there really an Adam and Eve? If we evolved, were people evolving all over the place? Then I wondered why long-ago sins affected me at all. Even if there was one Adam and one Eve and one rebellious choice to reject God, if God was so saddened by their sin— why didn't he make it right immediately? Why didn't he simply forgive them? Why did he hold it against their children? Why did he grump about it for centuries? Why did he hold a grudge against me about it? Then I questioned why God chose the church, filled with sinful people, to reach me. If God really wanted to save mankind, why not just save mankind? After all, he's God. Why give a small group, the Jews, thousands of years of false hopes and give a small subset of that group, the Christians, the remedy of baptism? Why provide a roundabout solution that reaches certain cultures mostly, other cultures partially, and most people not at all? And then I had many doubts about Jesus Christ. I had rejected him early in life and kept him at arm's length. When I finally embraced him, it was only through an extraordinary coincidence. By mistake, not knowing what I was getting into, I joined a college program that immersed me in a tight-knit community of Catholics. Then the program sent me for a full school year abroad to Oxford, England, where I studied with the world-renowned Dominican scholars there, and was assigned to be roommates with a man who would go on to become one of the foremost theologians of our day. While I was in Oxford, friends took me with them on travels to Rome, Fatima, and Lourdes. In other words, I embraced Jesus Christ because his followers befriended me, because the world's leading Catholic scholars explained him to me, and because I was guided into spiritual encounters with him in the most compelling Catholic shrines in the world. It was a remarkable foundation to start from, and it kept me Catholic for years, but false assumptions lurked in my heart. The false assumptions I made about God sound harmless, even respectable at first. A good God wouldn't let things get so out of hand with sinners in the church and in the suffering of my mom. 
The God of all wouldn't limit himself to one tiny group of people in human history, particularly a deeply flawed one like the church. An all-powerful God would save all his people right away, not build a kind of Rube Goldberg device that would bump levers, swing pendulums, and turn wheels for millennia to eventually save a fraction of his people at some point far in the future. I ultimately resolved these doubts when I realized that if I were to maintain these assumptions, I would have to ignore three realities that are among the most important and powerful forces in our world. First, human freedom. God wouldn't let things get so out of hand unless we really are free, and that's not an illusion. Second, the human family. God wouldn't limit himself to one tiny group of people unless people really are in the same human family, not different families based on race and geography. Third, God is eternal. God would save people right away and did because everything we see is right away for God. He is outside time and space, and we will be also one day. Everything is ever present to him. I wanted to start with these three concepts because they are necessary things to understand when looking at the life of Christ. Jesus Christ is both God and man, so we have to try to understand both God and mankind a little if we are truly going to grasp his story. To understand this, we need to understand that when we think of the world— we see it like a rat in a maze. The world is a maze of twists and turns and we're in the middle of it. The floor of the maze is the continuum of time. Behind us are the millennia of history. Our ancestors have been trudging along for much, much longer than we have records. Nearly everything our forebears did is lost to us. If we've read about the significant stuff, it's because at some point, relatively recently in the history of mankind, writing has developed, and even more recently, people started writing down and saving records of history. If the floor of the maze is time, the walls of the maze are space. As we fractured into different tribes and families, the different channels and byroads of time and space have led different people together and apart, and together again and yet further apart. But even among people living in the same time, geography separates us like an impenetrable wall, unscalable and soundproof. In the stretches of space and time, there are lines of people who believe one thing and others who believe another. There are the chosen people, the Jews here, and in another part of the maze, there are the Confucians and Buddhists who have gotten on for millennia. These groups are often barely aware of each other. All of us in the time and space maze know only past, and we know it only partly. We know nothing of the future. We have learned a thing or two from the old stories of people who've traveled through the maze. Don't go down a corridor that looks like that. Take paths like that one. They are more difficult, but they are a huge help in the long run. And even that knowledge is only a guide. We still don't know exactly what's coming up ahead. And we don't know at what point along the journey each of us will die, leaving our bones in the corridor as our descendants go forward in our place. We only know that we will all die in the maze someday. At any rate, when all we are capable of is a faulty memory of the previous paths of this maze, our inclination is to fit God into that maze. If we're religious, we may think of him as intervening in key moments in the maze. If we're not, we may think of him as a distant figure who at some point thrust us into the opening of the maze and waved us on, perhaps with a rule book. 
We may even wonder why the God of the maze is so foolish. If he wants to save everyone, why has he taken the hand of only one small band of pilgrims, ours obviously, and left the rest of the people in the maze hopelessly lost somewhere on the other side of the wall? If we're part of that group, we might feel lucky. Thank God he is trying to save a few of us by herding us through the maze in the direction he wants, while the wretched heathens stumble and perish. But even if we believe that, in our heart of hearts, it's pretty clear to us that if it's saving mankind God is after, he is failing. But of course, God isn't a fellow pilgrim with us in the maze. He sees the whole maze at once like a piece of paper. He takes it all in in a glance. God is outside the realities of time and space altogether. It's not that he sees the future like a magician in the maze might know the corridor that's coming up. Past, future, and present are all present to him all at once. And Christians believe that in his revelation, the words of scripture, he gives us that view from on high overlooking the maze where past, present, and future are all together all at once. Those people who are unreachable over the wall, those ancestors we've forgotten in our past, that future moment that we can't see, from God's vantage point, there isn't an irreconcilable difference between this time, that time, this place, that place. All time is now in his eternal glance, and the insurmountable walls of geography that pen us in disappear. And with them, the common objections to the old salvation story starts to disappear also. God is all-holy, an all-consuming fire of holiness. Our first parents lived in a loving relationship with God, basking in His light. But then they rejected Him, living a life and making choices that make His light abominable to them. God didn't try and fail to lead us through the maze. He picked His spot and in the fullness of time sent His Son into the maze. And there, 33 years down the corridor, He died on the cross for us. The event was so radical Its effects became the center of our maze. It's our goal and our way up and out. Or Jesus is not so much our way up and out. The maze stops being a maze and it becomes a world made and held in existence by God. The ground we walk on turns out to be his truth. The walls of the maze become an orchard of plenty he has filled our lives with to provide for us. And the beauty of his eternal home, like the sun, reflects everywhere, showing us evidence of an artist everywhere we look. Our free choices in space and time have made it hard to know him, see him, and choose him. My kids live in Atchison, Kansas, because of choices I made in my life. I made those choices because they were among the limited options I had available to me, given that my parents chose to live in Tucson, Arizona. My kids live where they live, look the way they look, and have the traits they have because my parents met in the first place, and that is because their parents' choices, and it goes on and on like that backwards for centuries and centuries, all the way back to the beginning of humanity where our first parents were the first ones to hem us in and take us apart from each other and from God. Jesus came into the maze not just to be a bridge between heaven and earth, the way, the truth, and the life but to take us out of that chain of family causation and adopt us into his divine family so that we can participate in the life of the Holy Trinity and the life of the Lord of the maze. Jesus had an almost impossible task. He had to show us that he was God and man and explain who God is and what humanity is at the same time. He had to do it in a way that all people could understand it and take advantage of it. 
the scholarly few and the illiterate masses, Russians and Puerto Ricans, melancholic poets and quarterbacks, first century shepherds and 21st century airplane mechanics. We had to open our minds to the universe when we had limited our vision to the confines of a maze. Then he had to get us to freely choose to enter into a new family covenant with him, accepting his offer to be our brother, our bridegroom, our father, our friend. The way he went about this was ingenious, the source of two millennia of fascination with Christ and the basic substance of what I want to talk about. Now comes the fun part. We get to explore this extraordinary story together. Philosopher Alastair McIntyre wrote that man is a storytelling animal, and I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. Ever since I pulled over on I-95 near Meriden, Connecticut in 2005, to wipe off my tears so it wouldn't look like I was crying by the time I got home. I've been diving as deeply as my small mind allows into this story, and I've discovered that the story tells me exactly what I need to know about myself. Let's see if it does the same for you. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.